Diana Spencer, and Prince Charles, Kate Middleton, and Prince William, Meghan Markle, and Prince Harry. We love a royal wedding, don't we? The glitz and the glamour, the tradition and the culture, the romance and the passion, that feeling of being a part of something bigger than ourselves. For all these reasons and more, billions of people tune in to watch one couple say I do. There's just something about a royal wedding which captivates people's hearts. And I think the Bible helps us understand why. You see, the Bible is all about a wedding, a royal wedding. In many ways, the Bible is one big love story. It's the true tale of a heroic husband seeking and saving his beloved bride. It's the ultimate romance, the preeminent tearjerker. Every other love story pales in comparison. Every royal wedding is but a dim shadow. And the exciting thing is this, we are all invited to this wedding. So what I'd like to do this morning is tell you a story. It's a story about a bride, an unfaithful bride who abandoned her better half. And it's a story about a bridegroom, a faithful husband who gave everything to win her back. And so I've got two points this morning. Let's begin with the first of those points, the unfaithful bride, the unfaithful bride. Uh, now, the Bible has many different ways of referring to sin. So wickedness, rebellion, iniquity, transgression, lawlessness, evil, to name a few. And each of these terms give us a slightly different angle on the nature of sin. But possibly the most shocking term that we find in the Bible for sin is the term adultery. For example, in Ezekiel 23, God is condemning the people of Samaria and Jerusalem. And we read this in Ezekiel 23, verse 36. The Lord said to me, son of man, will you judge Ahola and Aholiba? Those are two terms that he gives for Jerusalem and Samaria. And then he says to them, declare to them their abominations, for they have committed adultery and blood is on their hands. With their idols, they've committed adultery and they've even offered up to them for food, the children whom you've born to me. So the people had been worshiping idols. They'd even gone so far as sacrificing their own children to pagan gods. And the term God uses to describe this act of evil is adultery. Now, why does God use this term? Well, throughout the Bible, God describes his relationship to his people in marital terms. So he refers to himself as a husband and to his people as his bride. So in Exodus 34, God tells his people this. He says, take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest they become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, 
is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. Just notice a couple of things in that passage. So in verse 13, God warns his people about worshiping other gods. Why? He says, because the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Now, isn't that a surprising way of referring to himself? Now, we usually think of jealousy as a bad thing, don't we? And most of the time it is. However, there is a context in which jealousy is a good thing. And that's the context of marriage. Jealousy is appropriate when it desires the exclusivity of a marital relationship. A husband should be jealous for his wife's affections and vice versa. And this is what God is trying to communicate in Exodus 34. He describes himself as jealous for his people's affections. He paints himself as a husband who desires and demands exclusive, absolute devotion. So imagine a husband who takes his wife out for dinner. You know, he, he reserves a nice table for them at Foundham Farmers in Tyson's Corner. He orders a bottle of champagne. He, he tells her to order whatever she likes. And as she's looking at the menu, he decides to go to the restroom. But when he returns, he notices that there's another man in his seat. And this stranger is holding his wife's hand. And to make matters worse, she is smiling at him. And he then watches as they clink their champagne glasses and passionately kiss. Now tell me, what is the husband feeling at that moment? Well, he's feeling jealous. And rightfully so, this is his bride, his beloved. You know, if the husband felt nothing in that moment, if he felt no anger, no rage, no possessiveness, we think there was something wrong with him we'd conclude that he didn't love his spouse. And that's the image God gives of himself here. He is jealous for his people's affections because he loves them, they're precious to him, they belong to him. He's committed himself to them in a covenant relationship. In verse 15 and 16 of that Exodus passage, God uses some shocking language. Three times he describes pagan idolatry as a form of prostitution. He warns his people about whoring after the gods of the nations. Later on in Deuteronomy 31, we read something similar. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, you're about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they're entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Again, notice the language that God uses here. He talks about his, his people forsaking him and breaking his covenant. This is marital language. And heartbreakingly, God declares that his people will abandon him and whore after foreign gods. And that's exactly what they did. So in Judges chapter two, we read this. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who'd obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. So the people have not obeyed the commandments of the Lord. Instead, they've bowed down to other gods. Now, we might expect God to call this disobedience or 
rebellion or idolatry, but no, he described it. He describes it as an act of harlotry. God's spouse has sold herself to another lover. Later on in the history of Israel, their spiritual adultery only got worse. So in the book of Isaiah, God confronts his people in their sin. And he says this in Isaiah 1, verse 21, how the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Again, this is interesting. There is a lack of justice amongst God's people. If we were to read the whole of this chapter, God accuses his people of corruption in verse 4, oppression in verse 17, thievery and bribery in verse 23. Jerusalem has become a safe haven for murderers. And God calls all these social abuses an act of whoredom. Their sins against their neighbor are seen as an act of spiritual adultery against him. The prophet Jeremiah picks up on this theme. So in Jeremiah 2, in verse 1, the Lord says, the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to me saying, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord. The first fruits of his harvest, all the weight of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. God looks back at a time when Israel, his bride, were devoted to him in holiness. However, times have changed. So a few verses later, God declares in Jeremiah 2 verse 20, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bow down like a whore. So the nations would often worship their gods on high hills and under green trees. And God says on every high hill and under every green tree, his bride committed adultery. Ezekiel chapter 16 is possibly the most shocking passage in the Bible on this subject. I'm not gonna read any of it now for the sake of any young years in the room. But God's people are actually condemned for being shamefully promiscuous. God accuses them of abandoning him their husband for a host of strangers. But the most illuminating place we could go on this theme is the book of Hosea. So look how the book begins, Hosea 1 verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Then in chapter three, we read this. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. God calls Hosea to be a living metaphor. Hosea is to marry a harlot. He's to take a bride who will forsake him for other lovers. Why? Because the Lord says, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Hosea's wife is to become a symbol of Israel's infidelity. And Hosea's pain in betrayal will mirror God's anguish as a jilted husband. And this idea of spiritual adultery is not just an Old Testament idea. So in Matthew chapter 12 and Mark chapter 8, Jesus referred to the people of his day as an evil, sinful, adulterous generation. 
In James chapter 4, verse 4, the apostle rebukes the church with these words. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James is rebuking the church for, for thinking and, and speaking and acting like the unbelieving world. In this context, the people were quarreling and fighting with one another. They were judging their neighbor and cultivating anger towards one another. And James calls this spiritual adultery. And so when we look at the, the Bible as a whole, we see that whether it's sins against God or sins against our neighbor, time and time again, the Bible uses this metaphor of adultery. So what are we meant to take from this? Well, I think we're meant to grasp the shock and seriousness of sin. So think of those besetting sins in your life. Lust, greed, partiality, anger, lying, fear of man, grumbling, judgmentalism, self-righteousness, envy, ungratefulness, worldliness. Think of those idols that you find yourself bowing down to. Money, career, control, family, possessions, vacations, hobbies, politics, the approval of others. What's your attitude towards your sin? Is it apathy? Indifference? Have you grown tolerance of certain sins? Do you find yourself justifying certain sins? Oh, well, nobody's perfect. I'm only human. Everyone else is doing it. It's no big deal. I mean, God will forgive. That's kind of his job. Brothers and sisters, I think these passages that we've been reading should sober us. Sin is not just breaking religious rules. It's breaking a marriage covenant. Sin isn't just missing the mark. It's heinous infidelity. Sin isn't just full and short. It's spiritual adultery. When we sin, we are forsaking God in pursuit of lesser lovers. And this makes sin extremely relational. That's why God speaks about sin as something that grieves him. It causes him genuine sorrow. God is not blasé about our spiritual adultery. The Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Now, we need to be careful here. We mustn't imagine God to be pathetically insecure and lonely. You know, we shouldn't picture God crying into his pillow at night, listening to James Blunt on repeats. That's not the picture here. God doesn't need us. We don't complete God. The almighty God is all sufficient and infinitely glorious in all of his perfections. He needs nothing outside of himself to be who he is. So there's certainly mystery here that we can't fully understand, but God gives us this metaphor in the Bible for a reason. What's more painful than a spousal betrayal? What's more tragic than a bride running into the arms of another lover? Sadly, some of you know that pain. Even those of us that don't can imagine how heart-wrenching such a betrayal would be. The mere thought of it is enough to make us sick to our stomachs. Adultery causes a vomit-inducing sorrow. It provokes a wrath-filled jealousy. It brings about a suffocating shame. And that's what makes it such a fitting metaphor for sin. And this should cause us to hate our sin to mourn our sin, to turn from our sin. 
Think about a besetting sin in your life. How might it be beneficial to your soul if you saw that sin as spiritual adultery? Or think about the idols that you're prone to bow down to. How might it be helpful to view your inordinate love for those things as spiritual infidelity? When we read through the Bible, we see that it's a story about an unfaithful bride. However, that's not the full story. And that brings us on to our second point this morning, the faithful bridegroom. The faithful bridegroom. So God had every right to divorce his unfaithful bride. Yet, despite being a jilted lover, God remains a faithful husband. So throughout the Old Testament, he makes promises to seek after his spouse, to woo his wife, to win back his adulterous bride. For example, in Ezekiel 16, after a long, scathing rebuke, God says to his people, for thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. You who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant, yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. God promises to remain faithful to his people, despite their unfaithfulness to him. In fact, he vows to establish an everlasting covenant with his bride so that not even death could do them part. Or listen to these words in Isaiah 54. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment, I deserted you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. I mean, just notice how tender and gracious God's words are here. He repeatedly promises to remove remove the shame of his people. He calls himself their husband, their redeemer. He vows to gather his bride with great compassion. He acknowledges that at least for a moment, their infidelity caused him to hide his face. His holy jealousy overflowed in righteous anger. Yet, he says in verse 8, with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. In Hosea chapter 2, which we read earlier in our, services, in our service, God has more comforting words. He says in verse 14, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Verse 16, and in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and the war, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness. 
and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Again, just look at these amazing words. Don't forget, these are the words of a, of a betrayed spouse. And at this moment in time, his adulterous wife has no intention of returning home. Yet in verse 1, uh, sorry, in verse 14, God promises to allure his unfaithful bride, to woo her, to sweep her off her feet. He promises to speak tenderly to her, to speak gentle words of love and affection. He promises to betroth her to him forever in righteousness, justice, steadfast love, mercy, and faithfulness. In other words, he's not just going to drag his wife kicking and screaming and lock her up against their will. No, he's going to win her heart back. He's going to make her want to run into his arms. This is the kind of husband the Lord is. Before we go any further, can you just see how amazing God's love is? Here is a love that takes the initiative. Even though God has been wronged, he is the one who does all the pursuing. He doesn't wait for his bride to return on her knees begging for forgiveness. No, this husband makes the first move. He goes in passionate pursuit of his beloved. And haven't you noticed this is what God has done with you? When you were lost in your sin, heading straight for eternal death, who was it that came after you? Well, it was the Lord, your husband, the very person whom you betrayed. And ever since then, how many times have you strayed from God? How many times have you run into the arms of lesser lovers? How many times have you bowed down to idols? You know, if you're anything like me, I'm sure you've lost count. Yet time and time again, the Lord comes after us, doesn't he? He takes the initiative. But that's not all we learn about God's love. Behold how faithful the Lord is. Even when his people forsake him, he doesn't forsake them. Even when they stop loving, them, loving him, he doesn't stop loving them. Or consider how patient the Lord is. How many times would you allow someone to betray you before you threw in the towel? It's astounding how long-suffering the Lord is with his people. Or marvel at how gracious God is. We are so undeserving of his love. Not only have we done nothing to earn his love, we've done everything possible to squander his love. Yet God extends forgiveness. He seeks reconciliation. This is what makes God the perfect spouse, the ideal husband, the most wonderful covenant partner. However, a big question is raised at this point. How exactly did God win his bride back? How did God deal with the spiritual adultery of his wanton wife? Well, this brings us to Jesus Christ. So throughout the gospel accounts, Jesus is repeatedly called the bridegroom. For example, in John chapter three, John the Baptist calls himself the friend of the bridegroom. And it's clear that the bridegroom he's referring to is Jesus. In Mark chapter two, Jesus explains his disciples' lack of fasting by saying this, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Since Jesus, the bridegroom, was present, this was a time for rejoicing and fasting. Jesus' earthly ministry is often likened to a wedding feast. For example, in Matthew 22, Jesus tells a parable about a king's wedding feast for his son. 
And it's clear that Jesus identifies himself with the bridegroom in that parable. In Matthew 25, Jesus is telling his disciples to be prepared for his return. And he tells a parable about a bridegroom who returns for his wedding. Do you see the significance of this? Throughout the Old Testament, God describes himself as the husband of his people. And then Jesus shows up and he embraces this title of the bridegroom. In other words, Jesus is claiming to be God himself. So passionate is God for his unfaithful bride that he literally came down from heaven and took on human flesh. I mean, this is a love story like no other. Nobody has ever traveled so far in the name of love. But how exactly did Jesus win back his bride? Well, maybe the best place to go is Ephesians chapter 5. Let me encourage you to turn there. It's on page 979 if you're using one of the blue Bibles. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does, the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, there's a ton in that passage that we're not going to have time to look at, but just notice a couple of things. So in verse 32, Paul says that human marriage is actually a picture of a greater marriage, the marriage between Christ and his church. Paul calls on husbands to love their wives as Christ loved his bride, the church. And how did Christ love his bride? Well, look at verse 25. He gave himself up for her. He gave his life for her. In the words of the hymn we sang earlier, from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own love he bought her and for her life he died. The punishment for spiritual adultery is death, eternal death. Yet the Lord Jesus, the great bridegroom, he died for his bride. He took the shame of his wife's infidelity, and he bore that shame on the cross. He took the guilt of his bride's harlotry, and he was condemned in her place. But that's not all, because Christ didn't just take what was bad, he gave what was good. He exchanged his righteousness for her sin. He exchanged his honor for her shame. All that belonged to him, his holiness, his blameless record, his infinite riches, he gave it all to his bride. Think about what happens when someone gets married. The husband, he becomes united to his wife. The two become one. Therefore, everything that belongs to one person now belongs to the other person. 
And that's sometimes a good thing, isn't it? So let me use a personal example. When I got married, I inherited Heidi's Lord of the Rings extended edition box sets. And she inherited my collection of soccer DVDs. So we both came out equal winners. Similarly, when, when we're united with someone in marriage, we sometimes benefit from the income they earn or the car they own or the inheritance that they're due. All the things that they have suddenly become ours. But there's also another side to getting married, isn't there? So not only do they take on, not only do you take on good things, but you also take on their college debt or credit card bills or family drama. You know, mistakes they've made in the past can have consequences that you now bear the weight of. When we're united to someone in marriage, there's a sharing of both the good and the bad. And that's exactly what we see in the gospel. In our union with Christ, he takes on all of our sin and all of our shame, and he's punished for it. And in return, we take on all of his righteousness and his holiness, and we're rewarded for it. Listen to how Martin Luther put it. Here, this rich and divine bridegroom Christ marries this poor, wicked harlot, redeems her from all her evil, and adorns her with all his goodness. Her sins cannot now destroy her, since they are laid upon Christ and swallowed up by him. And she has that righteousness in Christ, her husband, of which she may boast of as her own, and which she can confidently display alongside her sins in the face of death and hell and say, if I have sinned, yet my Christ in whom I believe has not sinned and all his is mine and all mine is his. I mean, doesn't that just make your heart sing? I mean, talk about marrying up. You know, Jesus, what a bridegroom we have in him. You know, when a couple gets married and as they make their vows, they're blissfully ignorant of how hard marriage is gonna be. Yet Jesus, our great bridegroom, was under no illusions when he chose his bride. He knows us inside out. He knows our guilt. He knows our shame. He knows our past, present, and future. He knows just how awful this is gonna get. He knows his bride is gonna betray him. He knows his beloved is gonna run into the arms of lesser lovers. Yet, Jesus still said, I do. He still signed the marriage certificate. In fact, he did it with his own blood. Jared Wilson puts it like this. The truth is, you've never met a wrong spouse like Jesus. You've never met a disrespected spouse like Jesus. You've never met a spouse who more than carried their weight like Jesus. He's carrying the entire relationship on his back. This thing is totally one-sided. And yet, he loves and he gives and he serves, and he approves, and he washes, and he delights, and he romances, and he doesn't just tolerate us. He lavishes his affection on us. He justifies, and sanctifies, and glorifies. I mean, doesn't all this just make you love Jesus more? We love because he first loved us. I mean, who wouldn't want a spouse like this? Who wouldn't want to be eternally united to someone who loves like this, who serves like this, who gives like this? 
If you're united to Jesus by faith, then you're part of his bride, the church. If you've trusted in Jesus for salvation, then he is now your bridegroom. Now look, I know for for guys in particular, this metaphor of the church being the bride of Christ can be a little bit off-putting. It it can feel a a little bit weird to refer to Jesus as our bridegroom. We we much prefer to think of him as as our king or our friend. But I think we should really embrace this teaching of scripture. I mean, think of all the wonderful truths wrapped up in this metaphor. We have a bridegroom who delights in his bride. Doesn't it warm your heart to know that Jesus doesn't merely tolerate you? After all, what kind of husband merely tolerates his wife? No, Christ is fond of you. He dotes on you. He loves nothing more than lavishing his affection on you. We have a bridegroom who's committed to his bride. Isn't it comforting to know that Jesus is in it for the long haul? I don't know if you've heard of this, but there's now such a thing as starter marriages. So starter marriages basically assume that spouses will eventually want to trade up for a better model. Well, this isn't a starter marriage for Jesus. He will never leave us for a younger, better-looking bride. You can go to sleep each night knowing that tomorrow Jesus will still be devoted to you. His faithfulness is never ending. His dedication is infinite. For better, for worse, Christ is committed. We have a bridegroom who transforms his bride. You know, marriage changes people, doesn't it? I'm not the same person that I I was when I met Heidi. She's changed me for the better. I think a good spouse will do that to you. Their goodness rubs off on you. And that's exactly what we see with Jesus and his bride, the church. Remember what we read in Ephesians 5? Christ gave himself for his bride that he might sanctify her, cleanse her, wash her. His aim is, verse 27, to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. I mean, this makes sense, doesn't it? Since God is holy, he causes people to be holy. Since Jesus is pure, he calls his bride to be pure. And that's exactly what Christ is committed to. He doesn't just leave his promiscuous wife as he found her, but he changes her, he transforms her, he progressively purifies her. Because a day is coming when the bridegroom will return. Jesus is coming back for his bride. We read about that earlier in Revelation 19, which Scott read for us. In verse 6, we read this. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the sound, sorry, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen, it is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And just in case we were were doubting this promise, he says, and he said to me, these are the true words of God. 
the Bible pictures our marriage to Jesus as, as an already not yet reality. So the church is already married, is already the bride of Christ. The engagement ring has been placed on her finger. The betrothal has taken place, yet the marriage itself has not yet happened. The marriage supper is still being prepared. The bridegroom is yet to return. And here's what this means, that if you're not a Christian, there's still time. You are invited to this wedding. There's a spot for you at this great banquet. You, yes, you can be an honored guest. And not just a guest, you can be part of the bride of Christ. If you put your trust in Jesus, if you turn from your sin and receive him as your Lord and your savior, then he'll gladly be your bridegroom. He'll cleanse you of your sin with his own blood. He'll cover your shame with his own righteousness. He'll rejoice over you with singing. Friend, you don't want to miss this wedding. You don't want Jesus to be the one who got away. Christ offers himself to you this morning. So take him, he's yours. But for those who've received Christ, what should we do as we wait for that future wedding day? Well, let me close with three brief applications. Firstly, pursue holiness. Pursue holiness. Jesus deserves a holy bride, and he's committed to making her holy. When the bridegroom returns, his bride will be clothed in righteousness and purity. Since that's the case, we should strive for holiness now. We should prepare ourselves for that future wedding day. As a congregation and as individuals, we should fight sin and flee temptation. We should be committed to crushing our idols. I mean, what kind of bride, knowing that her wedding day is fast approaching, would flirt with other lovers? What kind of bride, knowing that she's about to marry the most amazing man in the world, would jump into bed with a stranger? Brothers and sisters, we used to be spiritual harlots, but that's not who we are anymore. We've been washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So let's pursue holiness. Secondly, love the church. Love the church. It can be difficult to love the church, can't it? After all, the church is made up of sinners. And some of you have been greatly sinned against by churches, by church leaders, by fellow Christians. Let me just say how sorry I am if you've had that experience. You know, it, it can be tempting to say, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. But as tempting as that might be, I don't think that that honors the Lord Jesus. Like if you came to me one day and said, hey, Mike, I really love you. You know, you, you're so great, but man, what's the deal with Heidi? You know, like, she's a piece of work, right? Like, don't get me wrong, I love you. I just don't love your wife. You know, like if you said to me, I wouldn't be, if you said that to me, I wouldn't be okay with that. You know, your lack of love for Heidi would actually be a lack of love for me. You can't love me and not my wife. She's part of the deal. And it's the same with Christ and his church. Jesus gave himself for his bride. He is the head, she's the body. We can't hate the church without hating Jesus. But the opposite is also true. When we love the church, we show love to Jesus. Do you remember at the end of John's gospel when Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? And he says, yes. And Jesus keeps saying to him, 
to feed my, feed my flock. You know, he keeps saying, like, if you love me, then you'll love my church. Because the church is precious to Jesus. So let me ask you, do you love the church? How can, how can you cultivate a deeper love for Christ's bride? What are some ways that you can practically love the church? Thirdly and lastly, anticipate your wedding. Anticipate your wedding. Now, some of you are getting married soon. So if I asked Paige and Samuel, what have you been thinking about recently? If I asked Mackenzie and Ian, what are you excited about right now? I know what kind of answers I'm going to get. They're thinking about their wedding day. They're filled with excitement and anticipation and a little bit of stress because the happiest day of their lives is on the horizon. Like if they weren't thinking about their wedding, you'd think there was something wrong with them. Now, brothers and sisters, we all have a future wedding day to look forward to. And I think this is especially good news for those of us who are single. You know, maybe you're not married right now and you'd like to be. Maybe you're worried about being single your whole life. You can't help but think that you're missing out. You know, I think in an effort to uphold the value of marriage, we in the church have sometimes idolized marriage, haven't we? And, and in so doing, we've, we've created a crushing emptiness in those who aren't married. But we need to see that human marriage is just a shadow of a far greater reality. The truth is, whether you're married or single, if you're a Christian, you do have a future wedding date on the calendar. And it's going to be infinitely better than any earthly wedding. The groom will be more handsome, the bride more stunning, the vows more permanent, the occasion more joyful, the banquet more satisfying. Listen to how the Bible describes this great day in Revelation 22. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. There's your future wedding day. Do you have anything on your calendar that's better than that? Me neither. So let's look forward to that day. Let's meditate on this day. Let's live our lives in anticipation of that day. Let's talk to one another about that day. Let's pray about this day. Let's sing songs about that day. Let's endure suffering in light of that day. Church, our best day is ahead of us. It's a royal wedding. We are the beloved bride and King Jesus is our faithful bridegroom. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you are our faithful bridegroom. What wonderful truths we've been able to meditate on this morning. We pray that you would help us to be a people 
who pursue holiness, who love your church, who anticipate our future wedding day. We pray that as we do that, we would run from sin, that we would flee temptation, that we would see sin for what it is, a spiritual adultery, and that we would run to you, our wonderful bridegroom. We pray all these things in your wonderful name. Amen.